Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this Sydney Writers Festival event. What an absolute treat to be back in the room together. My name is Michaela Kolofsky. I'm an interviewer and moderator, and it's my great pleasure to be conducting this conversation this morning with Emily Bisho and Miles Allenson. I wanted to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Let me introduce our two excellent authors this morning before we get going. Um, Emily Bisho is a Melbourne-based writer of fiction, poetry, and non-fiction. She has a Master's in Literary Studies and a PhD in Creative Writing from the University of Melbourne. Her first novel, The Strays, won the 2015 Stella Prize. Her second novel, Wild Abandon, that we'll be talking about today, was published in 2021. She's been teaching creative writing for over a decade and is currently a tutor at the Faber Writing Academy. She's also the co-owner of the Carlton Wine Bar Heart Attack and Vine, which we will talk about. <laughs> Miles Allenson is a writer and an artist. His first novel, Fever of Animals, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript in 2014, among a raft of other prizes. His second novel, In Moonland, was published in September last year. He's been a writer-in-residence at the University of Madras in Chennai and is a former creative fellow at the State Library of Victoria. And I should say as well that Miles and Emily have been teaching together over many years, um, or recently. 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 Um, This session is one of these funny ones... It's a great one. It's called a dual spotlight. So one idea for the session was that I interview both authors separately in complete kind of silos, and then they talk to each other at the end. But given that both these exceptional authors have read each other's books and know each other and work together, I'm going to weave them together a bit more. But if there are moments where we stick with one for a bit longer or it feels like I make a strange kind of U-turn to get to the next thing, you'll you'll understand why. Um, What I also wanted to say is that in thinking about the commonalities for today, between today's novels, um, and they are very different in style, they both do contemplate some similar themes. They contemplate the pressure of family and domesticity, the way that betrayal shapes people, and they also look at ideas of escape and of what it means to be a man and malehood. But for now, please join me in making Emily Biddo and Miles Allenson very welcome. So for people who haven't had the great pleasure of reading your novels, I wanted to start by asking you both to sort of introduce us to the story world. Miles, in Moonland, who do we meet? What's happening? Yeah, this is the question I find hardest to answer. Like, what is this book about? (laughs) Um, uh, So it begins with a character called Joe who um, is going through, I guess, a um, a fairly troubled period in his uh, life. He's a young parent and uh, he's having a... I guess, a, a sleepless and hard time. Um, and he's also th- thinking back to um, to his father who died when he was 17 um, and sort of becoming increasingly obsessed with um, the question of what happened to his dad, whether whether his dad, who died in a car accident, um, actually killed himself or whether it was, a, was an accident. Um, and so as the first section of this book sort of progresses, you, you get the sense of someone who is sort of abandoning his own life, the one that he's living in in every in the, in the daily moment and um, in search of something which is sort of like a kind of dream, I suppose, uh, uh, a mystery, the mystery of his father. Um, and so he goes on a, a long quest, I, I suppose, um, to interview a bunch of his dad's old friends um, and to find out who his father was really and, and, and hopefully come to some kind of understanding of, of what happened. And I should say as well that in the book we have sort of three sections of the book. The first section is Joe, who, and we meet him when he's become a young father. The middle section is his father, Vincent, who we meet when he goes to India, to an ashram, which we'll talk about. And the third section is Sarah, who is Joe's daughter. Sylvie. So, sorry. Sylvie. Sylvie, sorry. Yeah. Sylvie, Sylvie, who's, all, who's grown up. So we sort of get this kind of time lapse as well. Yeah. Emily, can you give us a sense of the world of Wild Abandon? Sure. Um, So, Wild Abandon essentially follows a young uh, Australian man, Will. He's only 23 and he's sort of before the the action of the novel takes place, he's just experienced his first devastating heartbreak. His um, first lover has dumped him and he sort of um, lives out maybe a fantasy that I have had in similar circumstances (laughs) and didn't do, which is he just blows up his life and... uh, runs away overseas and the place that he wants to go is America. He first lands in New York 
and and he's also sort of he comes from a small town he's grown up in a small town he's quite sort of ashamed about his origins he's um trying to become cool in some way he probably would not say it in those in those terms <laughs> um and yeah so he's he's got this sort of fantasy about new york and the experiences he's going to have there he goes on a bender. He um, burns burns his bridges, and then uh, he sort of embarks on a what he hopes is going to be a road trip. Stalls um, early in the piece because he runs out of money, and he ends up meeting um, a guy called Wayne, who is the owner of a private zoo. Uh, and it all gets even more dark from there. <laughs> it does. It does. I want to start by asking you both about voice and perspective, because as I said, Miles's book takes us through, it's, it's, it's kind of like almost like a time travel through a family, through these iterations of family. Um, but Emily, I want to start with you. In, in Wild Abandon, we hear all these different voices. Will speaks to us, but then we meet Paul, who's his brother's one of his brother's best friends. We meet Paul in New York, Paul's girlfriend, Justine. We hear from all these different people. And then woven throughout the book is this kind of almost Charlotte Bronte, dear reader, I had another line of cocaine. <laughs> like this kind of, this super, super voice. You know, it's a very interesting, I wanted to talk to you about why, can you talk to us about why you had all those different voices? Because it's, there's a, there's a lot to sort of follow. Yeah. Um, I guess the complicated reason for that is, I'm really interested in the idea of the sort of masculine quest narrative, which this novel sort of does play out in some ways, but I was interested in kind of, um, you know, subverting that from the inside in various ways. And I think the thing, one of the things that I um, wanted to kind of resist in the traditional masculine quest is this idea of the hero uh, as the, the centre of everything and everyone that, that he sort of, it's usually he, meets as a kind of bit part or a, you know, a, a figure guiding him or an antagonist or whatever, uh, usually leaving a sort of trail of destruction in his wake. And so I wanted to kind of basically take these turns where, you know, he is at the centre of the narrative, but uh, to kind of periodically remind the reader that, uh, his way of seeing the world is not actually the centre of the universe, that everyone else that he's coming into contact with is actually on their own journey as well. Mm. Um, and that, that that way of viewing the world is a, essentially a fantasy. Yeah. yeah. Miles, um, as we said before, there are you know, multiple perspectives in your book. And I know you said to me before our conversation today that you spent a long time writing it. Why did you decide, decide to, to have those three characters in effect tell their own stories and then weave them together? I think um, I wanted originally to, to write it all in one, in one section and I, and I tried to do that and, and, um, and I gave it to my editor and, and um, I, w I felt relatively confident that this was, a, you know, a, a, another masterpiece. Um, and, <laughs> and was that Joe's section? Yeah, in Joe's section. So yeah. this whole, you know, this first section, I carried that all the way through the book and, um, and I, gave, yeah, I gave it to a few people and they all... And um, unanimously agreed that it was shit, and <laughs> so that was partly partly the reason. And I, I think I'd <laughs> I'd realise, you know, like I realised that there were parts of the story that I I was afraid to tell, you know, that I was afraid I was afraid to do the kind of historical research that I needed to do to go into this ashram because the, a big section of this book takes place in an ashram in India in the 70s, and you know I had to do a whole lot of kind of like sometimes inane research, you know, trying to figure out how much things cost in 1976 and could you get a visa from somewhere to somewhere else if you were American and what, how long that took, that process took and all sorts of um, kind of details that I was kind of like, ah, oh, I don't have to, I don't want to do that. I just want to, you know, <laughs> write the book. Um, and so I sort of had to sort of take stock and, and go back in and do the, the, hard, the hard work to bring that section alive. Um, so, yeah, the other, I mean, the other answer to that question is, at a certain point, I realised that I, I really liked this idea that you have these quite separate perspectives. And even though these people are linked by family, they're linked by memory and by the circumstances of their lives, their own consciousnesses are so um, isolated. You know, mm -hmm. they're so different to each other. And I wanted to, to write each section in as, as different a way as possible to kind of show that... Uh, you know, that we are living in our own realities, you know, and often our realities 
I guess, in a similar way to what you were saying, mm. you know, our, our realities don't in, intersect mm. neatly. Mm. And in Miles's book as well, he does that across generation, which is really fascinating because the last section with Sylvia is set in a sort of near future Australia but feels like it's happening right now. It's certainly futuristic, but it feels eerily close to where we're up to. Yeah. So no, for, I, you, have yeah. To, you have to be online the entire time. And if you go offline at any time, the police come and find you to ask you why. Yeah, which is not unrealistic, I think. No. For, um, no. And, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk about that later. But the, yeah. fu the future section, I, I, I didn't want it to be a, a kind of a space odyssey. I wanted it to be pretty grounded in, in reality and to be a, a, a real reflection of basically where we're at now, but to, to incorporate a sense of, of time having passed, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Emily, you mentioned before this idea of using those perspectives to kind of turn the idea of the male quest inside out. Mm. But you do that as well in content as well, because, you know, when we meet Will, he wants to have this kind of Jack Kerouac type adventure and he stalls. You know, yeah. He wants to drive down Route 66 and he stalls. Can you talk a little bit more about why you wanted to turn that trope inside out? Because you really mess with it in this book. Mm. It's, like an, it's like instead of a coming-of-age story when Will can have these opportunities and kind of see himself and come to light, it's like every time he has a chance to see himself, he sort of shuts down. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I don't know necessarily why I was drawn to doing that. I think probably part of it came from teaching creative writing and you know, sort of thinking about the, the hero's journey as the, you know, very dominant uh, structural uh, device in a lot of novels and how, you know, the, the hero always is supposed to change and learn something, um, you know, and, and also, you know, a very big part of that masculine quest is the return home at the end, which is usually sort of a fairly short journey, uh, different, having kind of achieved maturity, being able to sort of... It's a kind of initiatory experience. And to me, that just seems fundamentally um, false to reality and the, the way that we, you know, actually change as people over time. We do not kind of just go overseas and, and achieve, um, <laughs> you know, experience wisdom, mm. fundamentally become another person. I mean, that's the fantasy of travel. And so I was interested in kind of playing with that as well. Mm. But... Yeah, I just wanted to sort of um, explore the fact that, that change happens over a lifetime. It's not something that you just go out and, and achieve by <laughs> going on that journey. And, yeah, that's probably the main Yeah, part. And I think as well in the book, um, Emily really brilliantly plays around with this idea of the idea of the traveller as the observer, that we have no impact on anything. Mm. It's, almost like a, it's almost like a sort of a post-feminist <laughs> look at what it really means to travel because everywhere Will goes, he, he's, he's there, even if he's not in his own body. He's sort yeah. of, he can't observe things at a distance. You can't not participate in stuff. It's not yeah. there to be. It's almost like the world is a woman for him to admire yeah. and he has a very different experience, especially in the second half of the book, which we'll come to. He does. And he does, um, <laughs> he just does, he does leave a trail of wreckage. Yeah. It sort of does, didn't dawn on me when I first read it, the, just actually what a disaster it is for everyone else. Mm. Yeah. He sort of comes, <laughs> comes into contact with yeah. quite, Like yeah. Jack Kerouac. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in Miles, in, in Moonland, um, in the middle section, Vincent, who's Joe's father, we go back in time and he's taken himself off to India and he ends up at an ashram. Why, um, what did you want to do differently in writing about the ashram kind of experience, the way you did? And what was he hoping, what do you think Vince was hoping to sort of do or undo there? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it has, there are inter interesting parallels um, with Wild Abandon. And in some ways, this is a book that tries to argue for something else, for the idea that you can, transformative change is possible, but that it also often comes at kind of great cost. Yeah. So um, he, Vince stumbles upon an, an ashram in, in the 70s, 1976, and it's the ashram of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who, who um, later became Osho. But this is the sort of early halcyon days of, of, that, um, of that movement, I suppose. And uh, he does have a really transformative experience. And so I w wanted to write about um, that experience um, in a way that did justice to um, the experiences that real people I know had in that, in that ashram. Um, I did a bunch of research and some good friends of my parents were there in the 70s. Um, and they were um, incredibly generous in, in really sharing their experience. Um, 
And so I, I, I know that that experience for lots of people was one of absolute, um, absolute transformation. But at the same time, uh, it's, one, it's a transformation that um, you sort of carry with you, you know, in a kind of broken way through the rest of your life a lot of the time mm -hmm. because it's not... It, you, you do change, but um, it's not necessarily mm -hmm. always easy being changed, mm -hmm. you know? It's not easy... Um, coming back to ordinary life and being up, be, being able to integrate those experiences into ordinary life is sometimes really um, challenging. Um, mm -hmm. So I was that was sort of what I was interested in the sort of the long aftermath of of those transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think you know it is also um, now that you kind of <laughs> drew that parallel. I think those things do kind of happen in in my book as well, like Wayne the the main the guy that has the private zoo, he's a Vietnam vet. So, you know, that's a kind of totally opposite experience to, to Will's, the way that he, you know, as a young man was in Vietnam and that changed him utterly. And, you know, those, also those transformative experiences are not always positive. Yeah, you know, no, they, absolutely. Yeah. And I did, I was thinking also of like how wary we should be of the wounded male ego. Yeah. And how in, yeah, a lot of these books it's the, yeah, it's the male, the, the, the male ego that can do a lot of damage when it's, it feels like it's been broken or, mm. or threatened. Mm. Yeah. And you write in a very, it's very poignant, Vince, the fa Joe's father, stays in that state really all his life. He bounces between being this loving, charismatic person with a great potential for joy to being violent and frightening and overwhelming in every room he's in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I based that partly on my own dad, who was a lovely person, but also had a r real temper that um, I think only in the last few years I've sort of come to understand for what it was. You know, he's, he's dead now, but um, that um, sort of those memories of, that, of, of, of my childhood um, and, I don't, you know, of, of those kind of formative experiences with a, a man who was very angry at times um, is something that uh, stays with you, I guess, you know, and, and works in unconscious ways a lot of the time as well. So that's something that I was interested in exploring as well. Mm. Yeah. I feel like it's a good moment. I wanted to ask you both about these depictions of the men in your novels. Um, Wayne, and I don't want to spoil stuff. There are kind of spoilers in the books. If you haven't read them, I don't, if, if I get vague, that's why. Um, Wayne, you know, ultimately becomes a part of this extremely dark experience that um, Will has in America in the second half of the book. Will gets lost on his, um, well, gets stuck on his road trip and ends up living with Wayne, who's a Vietnam vet, whose wife has left him. And Wayne has an exotic zoo. He keeps exotic animals on his property. And he has, is it like 140 animals? 138? Uh, not quite that many, like 58, I think. Yeah, it's a huge like number, that, yeah. though. He's got, you know, lions, he's got and lions and panthers, which he hand feeds, you know, monkeys, um, you know, very wild animals, some of whom he's reared. Um, but he's a very... A lot of the men, uh, it's, this phrase that kept coming to mind was kind of like emotionally constipated, which sounds mean, but they were kind of unable to process anything they felt. Will in particular. Will spends the whole novel feeling a sense of sort of shame, really, mm, shame about his yeah. culture, shame about being not manly enough, shame about being heartbroken, shame about why he's run from home. Can you talk about, I suppose, what you observed and how you found all those different resonances of those men because there are a lot of different expressions and they feel really real on the page. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know really how I developed each of those characters, to be honest, but I think, yeah, getting back to that idea of the sort of masculine, masculine quest and the, you know, the coming of age, the way that... Um, certain experiences that we have do have, you know, really lasting sort of impacts on us. And, and also, I, I guess, sort of thinking about the difference between the sort of experience that Will, as a, you know, fairly sort of privileged young Australian man, um, going travelling, seeking something, uh, how different that is to the experience of Wayne, who at younger than, you know, um, Will is when we meet him in the novel, was sent to Vietnam. And, um, 
you know, just thinking about those, the ideas of, you know, things that we think of in our um, culture as as those initiatory experiences mm. and how vastly different they can be um, depending on, you know, where you're born and what your mm. fate is. Um, I mean, yeah, and, and then I guess also just... I mean, I am... I, I was not trying to kind of write a book that... Um, is putting forth any opinion about masculinity. I think um, I sort of tend to just write in a way where it's like putting these characters in a situation together and sort of thinking about how each one is going to interact with each, with each of the others. But um, I guess I've definitely delved more into the world of, of male characters in this book. And, you know, that probably comes out of the fact that I was working in the bar a lot of the time before I started writing the book around young men. And I just, you know, it felt like quite a um, privileged situation to me. And I sort of started to think about myself as a bit of an undercover <laughs> agent, <laughs> eavesdropping, because I was a sort of late 30s woman at that time, and they were all kind of in their early 20s. They're very different from Will, much cooler and more confident and uh, <laughs> secure in themselves. But yeah, I think I just sort of started thinking more about um, and noticing what they were talking about, where they wanted to travel, what their dreams were, like, um, and it, it gave me that sort of sense that maybe I could write mm. more about men rather than just sticking with what I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you also layer in some startling insights about Australian cultural identity and the way that that kind of shapes how men are as well, I thought. Yeah, well, I, I think um, one of the things I really noticed that struck me when I was listening to these young men kind of talking, particularly about their dreams of travel, was this idea of going to America and it made me sort of think how different that was from when I was their age, where I wanted to go and a lot of my friends kind of leaving high school would go to London and work in a pub or Europe and it sort of, I think it was a bit of a niche sort of little group of young men because they were all in hospitality, they were all kind of into cocktail culture and all of that sort of stuff. And um, But also um, I think in that time America has undoubtedly become much more of a dominant culture um, mm. in terms of Australian pop culture, what we listen to, what we watch, what we eat, what we drink, you know, all of those things. And it just... it. At first, it just interested me that that sort of focus of travel and the fantasy of the other place had shifted from, you know, Europe to America. But then it sort of made me start thinking, well, there's still something, I think, about the Australian psyche that, um, you know, that place might have shifted, but there's still a sense that life is elsewhere, culture is taking place elsewhere. There's this sort of the other place where we must kind of go to find the real experience of yeah. life. Yeah. Which is, yeah, interesting and mm. probably sad. Sad, yeah. <laughs> Miles, I said this to you before, that there are these extraordinary depictions in, in Moonland of what it what it's like for Joe to become a new father, mm. this total disintegration and loss of self. And I, I can't remember reading that experience about parenthood from a male perspective, from a young male perspective. Can you talk a bit about that expression of Joe's sense of self and sense of himself as a man as well? Because his father's already dead when he has, has a child himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I also um, hadn't read very much from a male perspective. And, and I know that when I had my daughter, when she was born, um, I felt really angry that no one had told me what was going to happen. You know, like I felt angry with all my... with the friends of mine who'd had children. And I felt angry at the culture that had not provided some kind of... Um, some kind of um, map or idea of what to expect. Um, so I think I, I felt really strongly that I wanted to represent that experience, however, not necessarily in this book, but just when I was in, in any way, in, even in just in conversations, I wanted to represent it honestly um, and, and talk about how hard it was because for us it was particularly fucking hard. Um, <laughs> and, our, you know, um, our daughter you know, didn't sleep for two years and, and, and that is a... A kind of madness, I think, in, and um, not dissimilar in some ways to grief, 
you know, it's a type of it's a type of separate reality that you sort of enter and you 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 can see the ordinary world sort of over there. You can see mm. people moving in the ordinary world, but you're in a different world, mm. you know. So um, it was good to write about. Um, <laughs> it was good to read about. Yeah, you know, yeah. So I, yeah, I sort of enjoyed. I guess you know, with with some retrospect, being able to go back there and and write that experience and and. The other, the, the one writer I suppose who I who I was refer- looking at was was Rachel Cusk's sort of beautiful um, book, uh, Life's Work, I think it's called, which is her book about about um, being a mother and just how shocking and debilitating and deranging mm-hmm. it is. And I know that book was really badly received in in the UK when it came out, and she was called hysterical and sort of shouted shouted down. I think so. Even from a, um, I mean that's a, a few years ago now, and I think things have changed, and there's been a lot of books about um, motherhood, but not a lot, I don't think, about from, from a father's perspective, although no. Nascard um, does have a good section, you know, in the, in the second, of, second volume of his autobiographical masterpiece, whatever you want to call it, um, which, yeah, really shows the kind of laborious nature of a lot of parenting, the, you know, like spending six pages describing picking up the dirt that your daughter's knocked over at a children's birthday party or something, but... Um, yeah, I felt like there was a, a space there to enter into. Mm. And you described the sections as well from when um, uh, Joe, before Joe, while Joe's trying to piece together what happened to his dad, what might have happened to his dad in India, he goes to visit these old friends of his dad's and they tell him stories of raising children on these kind of hippie communes. And if we look at the photos, they look blissful, right? There's no internet and there's no rushing to work. And he describes this, he's like, shit everywhere and there's mud and it's anarchic and it was entrapment. He used the word entrapment. And that was really powerful to hear from a man. And he did not love his children. But it's also, in both novels, they are, these are not what you'd call you know, positive depictions of domestic life, of family life. As in, the, they really illuminate how hard it is to be a family, to make a family and to stay a family. But also in, in your book as well, Miles, if you can talk a bit about this idea that you also talk about when Vince, when Vince goes to the ashram, that family can take many forms. Yeah, that was the sort of idea that I think occurred to me slowly like well, at least consciously and I think my editor actually had to sort of like push that onto me it's just like actually this is what you're writing about because I would send her these frantic emails saying I think I figured out what this book's about <laughs> and, and um and I wrote lots of those about you know lots of different things that I thought it was about but at a certain point she said I think it might be about this and and she was right it was a lot about the idea of you know the, the shape that a family can make the way that you sort of can organize the different ways that you can organize kind of social arrangements. So you have a kind of nuclear family and the kind of natural pressures that are, are kind of brought to bear on, on that arrangement. And then you have an ashram and then in the future you have a kind of, a, a kind of quasi-commune um, in, the, in, the, in the city um, as well as a kind of like retirement village in a caravan park for, for, for elderly people that's also kind of like a commune but also kind of like a I don't know, like a bad caravan park as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> or a really cool old people's home. Yeah, they're taking yeah. like synthetic peyote and like walking under the moon, stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah, that that um, became interesting to me. Those those questions of how you arrange a family, because I know that a lot of the people who went to the ashram were people who missed out on family in some way. They were a lot. They were a lot of them, and I don't want to pathologize all of them, but a lot of them had had um, lost contact with their father in some way. And they found in Bhagwan a kind of perfect father, you know, mm. for a while. Could you read a little bit from In Moonland? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, we were just debating about which bit to read, but I'll just read this bit, which um, uh, happens after um, Vince has undergone um, what is called the Enlightenment um, practice. I can't remember. It's got a special name, which I've forgotten, but... Basically, it's a it's a, a kind of therapy where for I think three days um, you sit in a room with say maybe forty other people, and you have five minutes one on one with someone else, and the person just says, "Tell me who you are," and you answer that question for five minutes, and then the other person does that, and then you change partners, and you do that for eleven hours, thirteen hours a day for three days, just 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 answering that question, who 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 are you? And eventually the idea is that you sort of break down your entire sense of identity is totally dissolved. So by the end, no one has anything else, anything to say. Everyone, people are just weeping or crying or 
talking nonsense or screaming or vomiting, as the case may be. And um, for a lot of people, it was really an amazing experience. Like, it really worked. For some people, it didn't, but for, for some people, it did. And so this is um, the, the description of, um, of Vince, whose name is now Kamal, because he's changed his name at the ashram. Kamal is still now. The nausea has passed... His orange T-shirt, his orange pants are stained with bile and sweat. He feels the deep sadness of the earth like a weight pressing on his shoulders, on his neck, the sadness of humans in their wretchedness. At the same time, he feels a kind of lightness rising through him. He feels the animal strength of his heart beating, the weird miracle of his breath, the way air becomes breath and breath becomes air, a sense of borderlessness. Waves of light and exhaustion bathe everything. Grief and wonder are the same thing. Exhaustion and beauty are the same thing. Snot, blood, vomit, saliva, all the same. Rivers flow with blood. Mothers weep for their dead children. And even this is inseparable from the glory. He sees the self in the mirror that he has been trying so hard to protect and to run away from. A terrified child, a terrified teenager, like a mask or a precious statue. A powerful wave of compassion unfolds within him. Behind the mask, there is nothing. His body is empty, his skin is empty, his face is empty, his organs are empty, his name is empty. There is nothing behind his name. There is just speechless, unbearable truth at the centre of everything. Superb. Um, Emily, I wanted to ask you about two things. I want to ask you, I do want to ask you about language because we've, we've described the book in a fairly straightforward kind of way, even though it's complicated and there are, you know, a lot of voices we hear um, and you're turning a male, you know, a male quest for self-actualisation in on itself. But the way that you use language in this book is extraordinary. Emily, in her, uh, of her own admission in the acknowledgements, describes her sentences as Baroque. Um, and that is exactly what they are. They are detailed, they are ornate, they are heavy, they are languid. You have to read them three times in, a, in the best possible way, and yet they propel you through the story. It's an extraordinary feat. Um, I wanted to ask you, and then I want you to get, I'd love you to read a little bit as well, um, why did you want to use language that, that heavy and detailed in this novel? Um, probably the main reason for me is that the, probably the central kind of thing I wanted to do with this novel is just try and come to grips with or, or sort of wrestle with in my own way um, the strangeness of the time that we live in. So my first novel was a historical novel and I wanted to write about sort of contemporary times and just the absolute, um, you know, surreal nature of the, the moment in the kind of overdeveloped late capitalist West, basically, and the, the sort of pinnacle of excess and consumerism that we've kind of arrived at that to me is just so strange. And I mean, I think that's probably why I was drawn to this idea of the private zoo as well, like the idea that a person can own 58 lions and tigers and bears and... Um, something you know that sort of says something so much about our relationship with nature and animals and all of that. Um, but I guess the language for me, because I, I sort of, I guess I'm just a writer that, that likes language. I love thinking about language when I read. I think very carefully about sentences, and I, I think of language and the sort of style of a novel as another component of the meaning or the content. And so. I guess I was sort of trying to mirror this feeling of kind of excess um, in the language. Um, it's very full of, you know, adjectives, long sentences, things like that. And then I, you know, I guess I wanted it to even feel almost sort of too much for the reader at times. Um, and that's also partly, I guess, Will's experience of travel, of sort of seeing the world you know, the, the vastness of his experience of the world for the first time, um, his sense of being totally overwhelmed. Uh, and then as a, as a way of kind of trying to break up that experience for the reader, I also have a lot of dialogue, which is much more sort of colloquial and slangy and sort of um, 
So it, it moves between mm. those registers of high language and then very kind of slangy contemporary. And could you give us a little taste? Sure. This is probably like one of the more Baroque... This is a, a, a paragraph that's just one sentence. It's not all like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this will give you a sense of, I guess, what I'm trying to clumsily explain. The ends of all kingdoms come at last, and lucky indeed are those generations who are born and die in the morning of a doomed civilization, as each is doomed, equal and inevitable. And the earth's best hope is that our condemned, still copulating mass might hover light and snuff out soft upon the terrain of the slower dying cultures, the rocks and plants and mountains just as we hope not to be overrun by the faster rise and fall of the kingdoms of germs upon our own vulnerable pink or brown body lands. For to be human, a human creature born at the centre of concentric spheres of fall, the organism within the culture, within the species, is to grapple with questions that trouble neither wolf nor abalone, peach nor composite rock, nor even the last tiger, as it suns itself in the crosshairs of the vacationing dentist. <laughs> the real deal. Wonderful. Really wonderful. Um, this is something you mentioned to me before, and once you said it, I, when I went back and looked at the book, I was like, it's, it's of course, it's there. And you just said that language for you was another way of expressing the excess that Will experiences in New York, the excess that he experiences going to stay with Wayne. Um, but is there sort of a... Is that a kind of an ecological observation as well? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I sort of privately think of the novel um, as an ecological novel. It's not a sort of post-apocalyptic world. It's kind of almost a pre-apocalyptic world, but it's, for me, trying to, you know, wrestle with those questions of why are we living the way that we live, um, when it's so clearly leading to destruction. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something maybe wrong with us as a species that we cannot kind of um, look... We, we can't prioritise the future over the present and the present is so uh, overwhelming in its, richness and, and excessiveness and, you know, that is seductive undeniably just as the idea of having a baby tiger in your lounge room is kind of seductive. Um, so I wanted to capture both sides of that, the kind of seduction of the wealth of stuff and, you know, sensory experience. There's a lot of kind of food and drugs and um, stuff, you know, in the book, um, but also the kind of disgusting excess of that, mm. yeah. You described New York very well. It took, I said to Emily on the phone, it took me back to being 19 in New York and just <clears throat> being drunk for 10 days, like straight. Those drug sections are extraordinary that when Will lands in New York, he goes to stay with his, best, his brother's best friend, Paul, um, and I honestly felt hungover just reading those sections. <laughs> he just doesn't stop. And every time he feels something, he takes another drug or drinks more alcohol. It's unrelenting. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, Will is trying to kind of blot out his heartbreak, but there's also an element of that um, sort of sense of just, you know, it's one response that I think we all, maybe not in those ways, but we all sort of drift in and out of, which is just sort of, it's too hard to kind of really think about the reality of the time that we're living in mm -hmm. and let's just, you know, have a party at the end of the world because um, I don't know how to respond to, you know, as an individual, what to do, how to live, um, yeah. But also that, um, you know, that is a kind of response to life, you know, that, that decision to dive into it, to say yeah. this, this thing which is too much, I'm going to involve myself in the too muchness mm, which it. is also kind of what Vince yeah doing. i don't know i've been reading a, like a little bit of george bataille this kind of french kind of writer and he has this this idea of the the solar economy which is the sun the idea is which is the idea is that we can never repay the gift that the sun gives us it's always too much so we're always kind of 
in debt. So there's actually always a surplus as opposed to this idea of scarcity, which, which is the one we live in mm -hmm. um, generally. At a, at a sort of, in a particular philosophical level, there is always too much going on. And one of the problems, Bataille says, um, that we face is, is how to spend the excess. And one of the ways is through luxury or through the festival, through parties. Another way is through religion as well, mm -hmm. is, is to, to sort of, or, or the sacrifice. He's also really into the idea of the sacrifice as a way of repaying in a weird way the energy which is too much for us as, as humans. Mm. Yeah, and also like that, the sort of temptation to break away from the constrained, you know, life that is laid out for you. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's actually kind of remarkable that we're not doing that more really that you know that what Vince kind of puts himself through in these absolutely intense yeah. kind of day long you know multiple day long experiences it's like well that's available for everyone why, yeah, why, why are we, we not why are we all doing <laughs> yeah. it you know mm -hmm. like as a kind of like there's a kind of miracle the mm. miracle of being alive is sort of um lost I think for most of us most of the time mm. and then we occasionally we get like glimpses of it so you know like yes he's definitely avoiding like Will's definitely avoiding his all his thoughts and you know the come down and whatever but there's also a sense in which he's participating in life yeah you know at a, at a kind of another level yeah. yeah yeah and I think travel is is interesting in that way because it's often when people do experiment with those different ways of yeah. being mm -hmm. yeah out of sight of the people that sort of they think know them you know well and mm. yeah. yeah. And I think, Miles, something you said earlier as well, which is this idea that, it is, uh, that it's very hard to navigate the world as ourselves. You know, are we part of a family? Are we part of a community? What's my culture? Is my, am I cultured enough? Yeah. And there's a kind of annihilation of self in the excess that Will goes through and what he experiences with Wayne. And also in the ashram as well for Vince, there's like a complete, like a combustion of self. Yeah. And part of that's really alluring. Like it's mm. something maybe we desire mm. someone to take away all the pain of having to be ourselves and be in the world and yeah. mediate that. Absolutely. But it's also terrifying at the same mm. time. And yeah. both books really, when I thought about them together, really both shine a very big light on that. Yeah. Well, you know, there's that, that idea of the festival, which is, um, you know, you have your society and then every now and again you have a festival and everyone gets to, like, drop their, you know, drop their roles and step into this kind of like the carnival or whatever it is which is a very old kind of function for a way for society to let off steam and for the hierarchies to, to, to um, sort of shift. And there's a, a, a thing that um, Walter Benjamin said about capital, capitalism, which he, he said that capitalism is a celebration of a cult without dream and without mercy. Wow. So there's this sense in which capital, capitalism is a kind of party that you can never leave. You're mm -hmm. sort of forbidden <laughs> to go home. <laughs> and, that, and that's sort of what like we're Like a casino. Been, yeah, like a fucking casino. Yeah, like, like no clocks. Or yeah. like Brunel's, you know, like Avenging Angel or whatever. Yeah. You know, that sense, like, you, we can't leave and we have to just keep, you know, drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Until yeah. the... Buying, engaging. And dry, you know, and, and we know that it's a death cult as well. Yeah. You know, we know that we're driving off the cliff, but mm. we're not allowed to leave. And when you talk about leaving, it makes me think of something else I want to ask you. And in a moment, I'm going to throw open to the floor for your questions. So we'll, we'll come, we'll put some mics down in about two minutes. So I hope you've got lots of good questions, family and Miles. But you talk about um, that sort of death cult, but also part of what Vince experiences, you know, he's, he's all in in the cult, in, in the ashram. Um, but then he is betrayed also by the ashram. And I felt that there's betrayal in both books. There's a betrayal of Wayne and, in Wayne and Will's relationship and of Wayne by the whole world, even mm. though Wayne also has a very big hand in that. He's a very destructive figure in the book. Can you talk a bit about that sense of betrayal that breaks things for Vince and writing that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the book is a lot about sort of fathers and the, the, the kind of failure of fathers to keep their promises, I suppose, um, through generations and how that failure kind of reverberates across, um, across decades. And I suppose the, the, the biggest... Um, indictment I could say about Bhagwan would, would be that he sort of betrayed people in some ways you know like he he he, he became a um he offered something that was so wonderful but when it got mixed with politics um and when it just had to like mess with the ordinary stuff of life then people were left left behind you know people people were um sacrificed mm. yeah 
Definitely. Um, I think I will come to your questions now. So if there are lovely volunteers, they're going to move the microphones forward. Does anyone like to come up to the front and put a question to Emily or Miles? Hello. Um, thank you, Miles and, and Em and Kelly, for, for this session. Very, very generous. You've both written works of towering talent, great ambition, and I think it's um, not... Um, too unfair to say that you've both given years of your life and maybe that idea, Miles, of sacrifice um, to create these. And I'm just wondering if you would like to comment on what the role of the artist is in this um, society that has both too much and too little ahead of events on Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to let you answer that first, Miles. Um, the role of the artist uh, in, uh, in, at the edge of the abyss. Um, <laughs> Say so that arts funding is that the, that's the key. Um, yeah, I, I, the role of the artist. I don't know. I guess we um, where uh, there's a nice Gore Vidal. Actually, Gore Vidal said it, but it's a quote by Paul Bowles. I think that he says that uh, I don't know why people care about writers. Writers are nothing. They're just <laughs> they're just um, messengers from death. <laughs> It's a really cheery session, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so I, 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 I sort of second that. I've, <laughs> you know, I think that can be, um, that can be a very um, comforting or um, life-affirming kind of role to be a messenger from death in some ways because <laughs> it's coming. Um, and, um, I don't You're know. really making a great case for arts funding too. <laughs> should, I, should, I send, should I say this to Scott? Um, we are messages. What do you reckon? It doesn't have quite the same really? charm to it that I think we want to get across. But yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know, also, you, you openly it. admit at the, in, the, in the acknowledgements of your novel, you say it's impossible. It's almost impossible to write a novel. And I yeah. was very struck by reading that, the honesty of that and the dedication of that. And you weren't saying I needed 10 more years. You were saying there was pressure on me and that pressure was good and it focused me, but, God, it was hard. Yeah. I don't know. Like, even sitting here today, I'm like, this is so weird because, um, you know, it's just like a kind of weird dream that you have for, for you know, years, year after year in your, your bedroom, you know, mostly because that's where I write or in the car sometimes I, um, or wherever. And then handing it out into the world, it's sort of, it's, it's strange because it's not, I don't even know what it is, you know, I still don't know what it is. So, I don't know, I think there's something about just, just um, being able to remind people that they're alive, you know, that's, I think that's the image of the moon that I love so much, which is, which is the thing that reminds us that we're on a planet, you know, we just look up and that's, it's like those sci-fi covers, you know, from the 70s, there's always like three moons in the sky. Um, and you're like, well, they're on another planet, man. Um, <laughs> and that's what I think. You know, every time I see the moon, I'm like, oh, I'm on a planet. You know, and, and Levi Strauss has a good, good quote about seeing the moon landing. And he says, like, the one moment when the door opens, the door of the prison opens, and we're able to um, step out and see what's on the other side. And what's on the other side is, like, not much like it's the, the moon is desolate you know and so we're the we're reminded that the earth is like a prison and a paradise at the same at the same time so i guess that's what it's just like a moon landing you know like trying to write a book is like a moon landing mm. just trying to show the world the, the world back there yeah maybe mm. emily um it's it's funny i think as an, as an individual writer, I always find it quite hard to advocate for the arts because it's such a sort of solitary thing. It feels at times kind of indulgent, just sitting there and, and you know, thinking your thoughts and writing, trying to write, you know, beautiful sentences and things like that. But uh, I think, you know, being on a, a panel where you're kind of talking to another writer, I mean, I can definitely advocate for Miles's book even if I can't for my own and I think like just books have meant everything to me in life and you know it's not just literature music I'm obsessed with music film um I think 
yeah, I mean, I think we're probably probably preaching to the converted (laughs) if you're all here at a writer's festival. But, yeah, I think it is just, for me, I would not want to live in a world where people can't afford to make art, which sort of feels Mm -hmm. like we're on the precipice of, potentially post especially post-COVID, um, yeah, it's it's tough and, mm. yeah. There are these moments in both books as well where you, you're living, you're spending this a lot of time with these characters who are trying to work out where they fit in the world and what's so powerful about the books is that you actually both give us this very deep, it's almost an unspoken thing about what it means to be a person, what, what, the, what the idea of the self is. And you both show these depictions, I was thinking about it in the lead-up to today, of where life opens up to us and it shows us some kind of truth. And in that moment, we think in a lot of other kind of straightforward novels, you know, coming-of-age novels, we think that's the moment where I see what I can become. You know, Will sees what he can be. He can, Joe can see what kind of father he might become. He doesn't have to be like his father. And then you, you go through that door, you escape the prison and you become something else. But these two books, you know, The Role of the Artist, was your great question, show us the absolute complexity of that and that for most people it's not one clear moment and often the, those opportunities, the roller door goes down and mm. these characters don't make those choices and they live in pain mm. <laughs> and they make a mess. And yeah. there's something, I don't, I don't know where else I get that except from fiction. I know that we talk about books as empathy machines and people kind of hate that idea but that, I think that is partly the role of fiction. I don't, I, I, even if I went to see a therapist or I read a, psycho, a, psychi- a psychiatric text or I watched a read non-fiction on how the brain or the self or the psyche works, I got that from reading your books. Well, there's something I kind of talk a lot um, to my creative writing students about this that, that is kind of miraculous about the novel in that it is able to manipulate time in a way that you know, you get to see the span of a human life. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, but it can both kind of inhabit the minutiae of, you know, thought moment to moment and then show, you know, the shape of a life and the the things that, you know, um, the consequences of momentary decisions and choices that that characters make um, in a way that I think is, you know, it, it makes you think in a different way about your own life, which you can only experience uh, in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have come to the end of our session. I think it's a, a heavy and good place to, to end. <laughs> I wanted to thank you all very much for being part of today's session and for supporting Sydney Writers Festival. I want to remind you that Miles and Emily will be signing books in Bay 23 where you can get a coffee and talk to them and look in the bookshop. But I wanted you also to please join me in thanking Emily Bido and Miles Allenson. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.